We are in Ecclesiastes. Uh, we'll have one more Sunday in Ecclesiastes and we're done. So if you don't know the book of Ecclesiastes, if you're new, let me recount it quickly. The author, I believe, is Solomon. Wealthy, wise king, had everything he wanted. He decides to write a book. It's the most unique book probably in scripture because he writes it from the standpoint that this life is all there is. When you die, it's done. There's nothing after this. He's agnostic about what happens after life. And based on that, he says, okay, under the sun, if we just looked at life right now and that's it, how do we evaluate life? How does it look? And he uses this term called hevel in the Hebrew that's translated vanity, vapor. I think enigma is the best word. Life becomes an enigma. That things just don't add up. They don't make sense. Why is it done that way? Right? Enigma. So I had one of those enigmas this week. Um, I have a MacBook and I have a Kindle reader on it to read books. And for some reason, the Kindle program started malfunctioning. And when I try to turn one page, it turned like 70 pages. I can read fast, not that fast. So I'm like, ah, okay. And then you're trying to find, it was just, just a total headache. So I go to update my Kindle app and Apple wants my Apple ID and my password. I'm like, great. What's my Apple ID, right? What's my password? So I'm like, I don't have either of those things. So then you go through the, all the like questions. Where were you born? What was your mom's maiden name? What was your first car? What was your first? I'm like, I'm getting some of those wrong. Like, that's not right. I'm like, goodness, you know me better than me. This is insane, right? So, oh, okay. Finally get through all that. They send you the email, right? So then I go back and then it's put in a new password. So I put one in. It's like, no, you can't use that one. You already used it once. I'm like, golly, right? So it's like, it's gotta be 10 characters long. It has to have a number, has to have a symbol, has to have a capital letter. I'm like, great. So I put a password in there that I know I'm never gonna remember this. I'm gonna do the same thing in like a month or two. Like, this is insane to update my Kindle app. Like, are you kidding me? This is insane, right? Well, this week I also went to the bank, went to the ATM machine. Then it has everything I own is in that machine, right? Put my card in, guess what I put in? four numbers and just start spitting out money to me. Like that is so wrong, right? It takes an FBI PhD investigation to update my Kindle, takes one, two, three, four, my password to get all my money, right? That's stupid, I'm sorry. Huh, okay, so Psalm would be like, there's so many of these in life that don't make sense. His are much deeper than that. He's a much deeper thinker than me. He's like, death. Like if death is the end, then nothing matters, right? Injustice, why is it that really good people have bad things that happen to them and really bad people seem to get ahead? What's the deal with evil? Why is there evil on earth, right? So he goes in those deep enigmas. If this is it, then there's, this stuff does not make sense. And he pounds away at that for six chapters, the angst in the human soul, no matter how much you get, you always want more. Chapter two. And Solomon got a lot, right? Thousand women, just, that's crazy. He had a thousand women. And he still says in chapter seven, I'm still looking for one more, right? It's that angst in the human soul. So he has all that. He pounds at it for six chapters. Chapter seven, he still has the angst in him, but it's like he's aged a little bit. Instead of being so, he has this kind of calmness to him. I think he's, he's a grandpa now. If he's had some grandchildren, he's just mellowed out. He still has the angst, he still brings that up, but now he starts to add in this new ingredient called wisdom. 
That's why Ecclesiastes is in the wisdom literature. So he starts giving some advice, like sitting down with your grandpa over coffee, getting some advice on life. So he starts to kind of add in, here's wisdom, here's wisdom. And the thing with wisdom, like we will say, hey, pray that God gives me wisdom about this decision. And what we often mean by that is we want God to give us like the exact thing to do, right? I call it paint by the numbers faith. God, tell me the color and tell me the square that you want me to do, right? So if someone wants wisdom on who to marry, God, tell me the exact person I'm supposed to marry, right? You're supposed to marry the twin of Kylie Jenner. Yes, right? Like that. Tell me the kind of socks I should wear today. That's not what wisdom is. Wisdom is rather something that's like guiding principles for life. That you and I can take the principles and take our situation, whatever it might be, and then use these principles to make decisions about our life. It's actually a way that grows people up, right? Paint by the numbers doesn't grow anybody up. Paint by the numbers will never be a masterpiece, I told Wednesday night. The Louvre is not gonna ask, hey, we're getting the Mona Lisa out of here. We want your puppy paint by the number picture. It's awesome. So God wants masterpieces. So he gives us this kind of guideline of wisdom that will help us, help us in life, help us make good decisions, right? So on this thing, um, I call this, this life, according to Solomon, is a vapor. So the wisdom he gives, I call it vapor management. So your life is an enigma. It doesn't make sense. It's a vapor, but here's the deal. If you want to make the most of your vapor, here's some wisdom on how to manage that vapor. That's wisdom. And the wisdom that the Bible has, it applies to believer and unbeliever, right? There's just principles that work and the Bible is full of wisdom. I'll give you some examples. This was a a profound concept 3,500 years ago. When you go to the bathroom, take a shovel, dig a hole and bury it. Does that work for just believers or unbelievers? Someone said, amen over here. (laughs) Right? That works for, I don't care if you believe in Jesus or not, that's a good idea. All right? The Bible says, if you dig a hole at night, put something around it so someone doesn't fall into it. Is that only for believers or unbelievers? Both, right? If you make a deck on top of your house, put a guardrail around it so that kids don't fall off and break their necks. Is that for just believers or unbelievers? Both, right? Yes, okay. So that's what wisdom is. And so now we're entering into, I call it getting down to business. In chapter 11 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon grabs his grandson, his granddaughter, and says, you're gonna work. Here's some principles that will guide you when you work in business. It's gonna apply no matter who you are, all right? So let's take a look. Chapter 11, verse one. Cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or to even eight, for you know not what disasters may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Selah. He who observes the wind will not sow and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God 
who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or they're both alike, will be good. Principles for life. I'm gonna give you five I see right in here. And they apply, I think, universally. All right, so number one is verse one. It says this, cast your bread upon the waters for you will find it after many days. What's he saying here? Feed the ducks at Riverside Park. Success goes through Riverside Park. No, it's a poetic way of describing a principle called reciprocity. And sociologists that have studied humans and different hunter-gatherer up to the most tech Singapore crew have found this. In the back of every human mind is the principle of reciprocity. And it's this, if somebody gives something to me, I feel indebted to them and I want to, at some level, repay them. It's called reciprocity. And it's in us. Science has proved it. They actually use it now. So let's say today you go to eat somewhere. You go to Tap Rock. You're out on the deck, enjoying a beautiful day, you and your friends. You're sitting there. The waitress or the waiter brings you your bill and on that little piece of whatever it is, kind of plate thing, she puts three little candies on there to give them to you. Why did she put those three candies on there? Is it because you were so sweet? You're such a great crew. She loves you so much. You know why? Science has found Three candies is the number two. If they give you something like that, three candies, you want to repay them. Guess how you repay them? Higher tip. Their tips went up by 23%. You give 23% more when they include those little candies on there, right? So it's not that you're so sweet or they're so kind. It's actually the mafia. They're extorting from you, <laughs> right? It works, Timeshare, what? We'll give you a free vacation, why? Because you come listen to our 90 minute presentation and then in the back of your head is this principle of reciprocity that's there like, maybe I should do this. You know, they did give me a vacation, right? It's, they've used it, man. Matt, that sounds totally manipulative. It is. That's why we give you free coffee. <laughs> I'm kidding. Kind of. <laughs> right? Solomon isn't saying, he's just saying, this is the way things work. It is a powerful truth when you're thinking about life. Reciprocity, it works. What's fascinating to me is this. Jesus repeats it. It's Luke 6, 38. Give and it shall be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, running over will men give to you. With the same measure that you give out, it's going to give them back to you. Reciprocity. So as New Testament believers that don't want to manipulate people, how do we deal with this? Well, I think it's the next verse. Give portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disasters may happen on the earth. Principle number two is generosity. So yeah, there's this thing of reciprocity and it's in all of us, but there's this other principle called generosity. Wise People are generous. And these, Solomon's saying, be radically generous. Give to seven, give to eight people. Time, talent, treasure, advice, affirmation. Be a 
person that's radically generous. Now, why does he say that? Because you don't know what's coming. Be generous because you don't know what's coming. There's this great example in our history of how this works out. Do you guys know who Herbert Hoover is? 31st president of the United States, New Deal. Herbert Hoover had the dam built that's, you know, Hoover Dam, one of the wonders of the world, all right? So he's that dude. But when he's a young college student, 1880s, he and a group of friends formed this union where they're trying to figure out how to pay their tuition. Poor, they were dirt poor. And so they decided, Hoover did decide, let's put on this concert. Right, this is in the days before television and radio and movies and the internet. Can you imagine a world like that? The horror of it. So concerts were big back then. And there was this famous piano player named Jan Paderowski, who's well known. So they said, let's hire him. Let's sell tickets. We'll make some money. So they do this. Well, it turns out he can't sell the tickets to it. And so he's going under with this whole thing. He tries to cancel it, but Paderowski's already in town. So he's like, I'll play it. I'll waive my fee. I'll play it for free. It's like, okay. But even then, he's still in the hole. Like he still owes money on renting out the stuff. Paderowski finds out he's still in the hole. He pays off the whole bill for Hoover, this poor college student, right? Just as nobody to Paderowski. Just he's kind and generous, right? Well, time goes on. World War I happens. Poland is decimated by this war. Paderowski becomes the prime minister of Poland. They go through a famine like Biblical proportions, famine. Millions will die. But Herbert Hoover, who's part of the, the, he's not president yet, but he's part of the ag department in the United States. He launches the largest relief effort in Europe's history to save Poland. When he meets with Paderowski, he's like, hey man, thank you so much. I can't believe you've saved my people. He goes, don't, don't thank me. You don't, may not remember this, but when I was a starving college student, you paid my bill. You helped me out of a hole and I can't, and I want to help you out of your hole. That's how it works. Generous people have those kind of things happen to them because they're generous, right? It comes back to you. That's what's being said here. Like wise people are generous. So I'll, I'm gonna talk to you about 1500 people today. If each one of us as Jesus followers went into this week saying, I'm gonna find seven, Eight people to be generous with. Could be financially. Could just be advice. Could be using my talents, my time. Could be telling them thank you. If, if we did that seven or eight times, is that gonna come back to you at some level? Man, your work will get some of that. Your employees will get some, Your family could get some of that. Your friends could get some of that. It's, it's a tsunami then that begins to raise the tide of the very culture of Grant's Pass. That's what he's saying. Just be generous. It's, it's gonna help you. It's gonna come back to you, right? Reciprocity, generosity. Then verse three. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. If a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. Anyone wanna take a stab at that? Like, is that wisdom? That seems insane to me. Is Solomon Captain Obvious here, right? A tree falls over, that's where the tree will be. Is Solomon that dude, right? The dude that's like, hey man, you wouldn't be so tired if you went to bed earlier. Thank you, right? That's helpful. Okay, I'm tired of you now. 
Here's my favorite. People that text you, call you, or snap you at 3 a.m. and they ask, are you asleep? No, I'm bungee jumping, bro. It's 3 a.m. Come on, right? Like, God, is Solomon that guy? No. Here's what he's doing. And the Bible's written to people that would have read it in 1000 BC. Here's what he's doing. He's saying this, look out for the bankables. If you're gonna be a wise person in life, there's always bankables. There's things that work no matter where you're at, no matter what you're doing. Don't overlook the obvious stuff. Do the obvious stuff. That's what he's saying in poetic form. Son, daughter, they're bankables. I'll give you some examples. Compounding interest. That's a bankable, right? It always works. It doesn't fail. Compounding interest. Albert Einstein, who discovered the physics behind the nuclear bomb, knows about forces. He is quoted as saying this. Compounding interest is the most powerful force on earth. The man who understands it, earns it. The man who doesn't, pays it, right? Compounding interest. I tell people this, the sooner the stronger. If you are 25 years of age and you invest $10,000 at 25, 8% interest, when you retire at 65, you'll have a quarter of a million dollars. If you wait just 10 years and do it at 35, and invest that $10,000. At 65, you'll have $2. It's compounding interest. Please know I just made that up. (laughs) Not the quarter million dollar side though. It works. What Solomon is saying is this, son, daughter, grandson, granddaughter, there's some bankables. Take advantage of them. We have the same sayings today, right? A penny saved is a penny. Is that obvious? Is it saying something more than it seems like? Totally, it's saying save some money because you never know when there's gonna be an opportunity that needs that money, right? A bankable is a good name. Does your credit score matter? Yes, doors will slam shut in your face if you don't have good credit. Opportunities, ability to buy a home, car, business, it's gonna slam shut in your face if you don't have a good name. So be working on a good name. If you don't have a good reputation as faithful, as trustworthy, People aren't gonna entrust you with stuff, right? Good name. There's just bankable things, low-hanging fruit. Pick it, Psalm would say. Mentoring works. Like experience is the greatest capital that we have, but it doesn't have to be your experience. I read biographies all the time. Almost every biography I read, the guy will say, the gal will say this. When I was young, there was a man, there was a woman and they helped me experience. Young people that ask me like, hey, I have this idea. My first question to them now is this, do you know someone that's doing that? Do you know anyone that's doing that same thing? Write out five questions, meet with them for a half an hour, ask the five questions, and then say, hey, thank you for your time. Like that's bankable. Someone's experience, it can launch you, launch you. Low-hanging fruit, bankables, wisdom. Number four, He who observes the wind, verse four, will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Number four, take some risks. Psalm is saying, 
In life, you're never gonna know everything. Take risks. If you're the person that's out there agricultural-wise and you keep waiting for the perfect weather, guess what? You're never gonna sow and you're never gonna have a harvest. You've got to take risks. Like there are people I know that I'm like, bro, pull the trigger, right? You've been dating this girl for 10 years. What are you waiting for, right? What you, well, I gotta get my career going better. 10 years, man. That, it, your career's 10 years in. Well, I wanna buy a house first. Buy a house then. I'm waiting for 3.72% interest. That ain't ever gonna happen, man. Buy a house, right? I'm waiting to get 25 grand in the bank. Dude, do you think you're Warren Buffett? Dude, just pull the trigger and get married. Like some of the best memories couples have is when it was hard, when they were young. They're eating great value ramen, not even top ramen, sharing a great value soda, right? Dreaming of the day they can each have their own soda. Oh, that'd be so awesome. Man, those are huge. Pull the trigger already. Like, come on. That's what he's saying. Like, there's going to be risk in life. Take some risk, right? Go to the pawn shop, get a ring, pull the trigger. And the comparison he makes is of a baby growing in the womb. Now, the ancients, they knew how that thing got started, but man, there's a mystery from there. We have more information today, no doubt. Like we know what's important in the womb. Hey, mom, look out for some stuff. Don't be smoking cigarettes. Don't be drinking. Don't be bungee jumping. Like don't do that stuff. But here's what's amazing. There's still mystery to it. With all our technology, with all of our science, there's this new field called epigenetics. And what they're finding is this. Dad has a massive effect on his kids in the womb. Did you know that? If you want a great article, read. It's in Nature Magazine. It's called The Sins of the Father. It's literally talking about what dad is doing at the point of conception affects the epigenetics. Epi just means over. It's not even in the DNA. It's the overgenetics of that child. And not only that child, but that child's child, his grandkids. It's unbelievable. Here's one example they give. If a dad at the time of conception is eating a bunch of fatty food and a little bit overweight, chances are his kids and grandkids will struggle with weight. Like, is that crazy? They don't even know how it works. Like, that's insane. So if you have a little bit of chunk in your trunk, blame your dad. <laughs> dad, stay off the Mickey D's, man, right? That's, it's still a mystery. So what Psalm is saying is this, listen, you're not gonna understand everything. At some level, you're gonna have to pull the trigger. At some level, you're gonna have to take risk. I read that study and here's all I could think of. I can't control that back there, but what am I doing right now that's gonna echo into my kids and my grandkids and my great grandkids? Because I can control that right now, right? Psalm would say, take some risks. I read this article on Amazon today. Not today, this week. And Amazon is known as a risk-taking company. So this article is all about the big failures of Amazon. Like they're massive, just billion dollar failures. I'll give you one. Has anybody heard of the Fire Phone? Yeah, that's why two of them were sold. Like billions and billions invested into the Fire Phone, nothing. They just, but you know what? At the end of this article, just 30 different massive billion dollar fails. At the end of the article, it said this, we have created a culture of risk and we know failure is part of that. It's what's made us great because they're willing to try whatever. We'll try anything. And they have, and they're now a trillion dollar company. Like risk, take some risk. It's okay. So I've written on my computer at home, 
this little saying, very little of eternal importance ever happens apart from risk. Like there's always risk involved. Abraham, leave your family, leave your friends, leave your house, leave the land that you were born in, the only land that you know, and follow me to a land you've never heard of, never seen, follow me. Did that take risk? Massive, that's how the whole story starts, risk. Moses, Pharaoh wants you dead. March back into that throne room of the most powerful man on earth. March into his throne room and say, let my people go. That take risk? Totally. David, you're a little forgotten shepherd boy. Take your sling and go out and fight that giant called Goliath. That take risk? Fully. Esther, your people are in danger. You need to go into the throne room of the king. And if he does not lower the scepter to you, Esther, your head gets cut off. But if you don't, all your people and all your family die. That take risk? Big time. Paul on his missionary journeys, right? He knows what's gonna happen now. He knows the script. I'm gonna go in this city. I'm gonna get the snot kicked out of me, right? And he does it over and over and over and over again. And we are the recipients of his work that the gospel would come to you and me. Risk. Solomon says, you're not gonna have it all figured out. You gotta take some risk. And then lastly, and finally, verse six, in the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Finally, fifthly, finish it. Solomon's looking at a guy farming. When you worked in the old days, you worked from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. That was a work day. And he's saying this, when you go out in the morning, sow your seed and don't quit at 10. Keep sowing your seed, keep working all the way through until six at night, right? Finish it. Here's what wise people know. Wise people know this. When you're at work, you should work. It's wisdom. That's what Solomon's saying. So we have this thing today where everyone's busy. And I always wanna push back against that. Are we really busy or are we unwise, right? Because I think each one of us has been given the exact same amount of time, 24 hours. And if you are wise with that 24 hour period of time, I don't think very many people are actually that busy. But I think here's what takes place. I'll give you this scenario. So today's Sunday, tonight get kids down or spouse down or whatever it is. And it's 11 o'clock at night. And you're wondering, should I go to sleep right now? Or should I see what's on TV? So you turn on the TV and guess what? Your favorite movie is on. Honey, I shrunk the kids. You're like, ah, I've got to watch this again. So you watch the whole movie. It's one o'clock at night. When you get done, you go to lay down, but the movie is so awesome to you. It just keeps running your mind. You can't go to bed till two, right? So you got to get up early. You get to work, you're beat. You're drinking coffee, you can't engage, you're reading the news, you're checking some email, you're not doing anything. You just waste Monday. Tuesday, you come to work, you feel so bad about Monday, how you wasted it, you can't get anything done on Tuesday. So Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you're working your tail off, you're trying to catch up, but you're two days behind. You can't quite do it. So you have to come in on Saturday to finish what you should have done on Monday and Tuesday, but you can't do the honeydew list that you're supposed to do on Saturday. So instead you get home late, you're exhausted, you just go to bed and never see your family. And it's Sunday again. Is that busy or unwise, right? And yet that happens all the time. Wise people do this. They do what they're supposed to do 
when they're supposed to do it, right? It's that simple. When I'm at work, guess what I do? Work. Does anybody actually do that though? Mm -mm. So I just got new statistics this week. This is from the Bureau of Labor. I'll send it to you if you don't believe me, right? This is from our government. So take it with a grain of salt. It's from our government and they have this, they say this. So it's their statistics. Uh, When you're talking like an office job, people that go to an office and sit and do that kind of stuff. You and I, if we have an office job, we're averaging 8.8 hours there. So we get there a little bit early. We have a lunch. We stay there a little bit late. So it's 8.8 hours that we're at that place. So they ask, this is their thing. How much productivity does that person accomplish in 8.8 hours? Because this is people that hire thousands and thousands of people. Like how many do we need to hire? What's the productivity of a person that's there in an 8.8 hour shift? How many hours do we get out of them? Let me ask you guys to guess. Six hours, five and a half hours, five hours, zero hours, two hours and 53 minutes. That's insane, isn't it? So then they said, here are the things that distract people from actually doing their job. Number one, reading internet news, one hour. Number two, social media, almost an hour. Number three, talking to coworkers about something that does not have to do with work. And then number four, looking for a new job. I love that one. Man, this job is so hard. I gotta find a different job. Or two hours and 53 minutes is too much. <laughs> I tell my kids this. You work an eight hour a day, you're gonna rule the world because we don't do it anymore. Wise people do this. They show up and they work when they're supposed to work from the time they get there, Solomon says, until the time they go home. They just do it. They work hard. That's wisdom. That's how you and I get ahead. And what happens is when you do what you're supposed to do, when you're supposed to do it, you can do the other things that you're supposed to do. So if I work when I'm supposed to work, then I get home, I get to play when I'm supposed to play. And then I get to take a Sabbath when I'm supposed to Sabbath. And I'm not a robot anymore. I get to stop doing stuff. I get to just be for a day. And you get in this shalom. Solomon's really wise here. Work when you're supposed to work. All right, so this is wisdom. Applies to anybody. You don't have to believe in Jesus. But here's the thing. We are on this side of Calvary, on this side of the cross, on this side of grace, on this side of Jesus. So we always need to look at wisdom through the lens of where we're actually at as New Testament believers, as followers of Jesus. So looking back at that, the Bible says this. It's Ephesians 5. We're to walk circumspectly, which literally means to walk in a circle. It means you're just kind of looking at your life. Like, am I doing things right, right? We should take time and do that. So looking circumspectly at these five things as New Testament believers, how do they apply to us? Well, let's look at one and two. Reciprocity and generosity. Are New Testament believers supposed to be generous? So 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. The longest treatment of generosity in the Bible begins by saying this. He who was rich became poor for your sake, that you who are poor might become rich, that Jesus left everything, gave everything for us so that we might be rich. And then it goes on in chapter nine to say this, God loves a hilarious giver, right? How cool is that? It means this, when you're writing out your check, you're giggling, you're laughing, not because it's gonna bounce, (laughs) but because... Jesus has been so generous to you that you have the ability now to give. Like, wow, man, I can't believe I have the opportunity to give. Thank you, right? 
We're supposed to be generous. So I have to ask myself the question, am I a generous person? If I was to give out to five people that are close to me, a sheet of character traits, and one of them was generosity, would, would my friends circle that? Say, yeah, you're generous. You're generous with your time and your talents, your experience, with your money, with the stuff you have. You're generous because New Testament believers are supposed to be generous, right? Are we generous? Number three, are we a group of people that do the bankables? The thing that we're in called Christianity. Do you know how old it is? It's 2000 years old. Lots and lots of people have done this thing that we're doing. It means this, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Like this thing's already been done. And there's these bankables that throughout history, 2000 years of Christianity, people have always engaged in and they've always worked, right? Like what? Like reading your Bible. That's a bankable. Here's what the Bible says. People say, man, I just want great faith. I always turn them to Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God. You want great faith? This is the fertilizer. Are you fertilizing your faith? Because if you're not, then okay. Your faith's gonna be weak. Man, I'm struggling with sin. Okay, Psalm 119, verse 11. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed to the word of God. Do you have a verse that when you're tempted with that temptation, you are quoting saying, I'm taking heed to God's word. That's how you cleanse your ways. Right? How about Psalm 1? Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Doesn't see sit with the sinners that doesn't stand with the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on it does he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. He'll bring forth fruit in his season. He'll, his leaf will not wither and whatever he does will prosper. Have you listened to that verse? Those are phenomenal promises. To what kind of man, what kind of woman? Doing the bankable of God's word. Are we doing that? Right? There's a bankable called prayer. Throughout 2000 years of Christian history, a constant thread in the Bible is prayer. And a constant thread of our history is prayer. Peter says this, 1 Peter 5, verse seven. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you, pray. Jesus says, ask, seek, knock. James says, you have not because you asked not. Are we not getting what we should be getting, what God wants to give to us as a generous father, simply because we're not praying and asking? It's a bankable, right? New Testament has 120 times this thing called the one another, that we one another each other. It's called the connectedness of the body. Are we connected to people that one another us, that encourage us, that exhort us, that love us, that help us, that all those things that happen with one another, are, are we connected? That's a bankable, are we involved in any of the spiritual disciplines? Fasting, read Isaiah 58. Confession, Galatians 6, 1. Right? Repentance, Psalm 51. Go on, you know, are we involved in any of these spiritual disciplines that are, they're bankables. They work. They'll always work. Are we involved in those things? I have to ask myself that question. The low-hanging fruit, not that difficult. Am I reading my Bible? Am I praying? Am I connected to the body? Am I doing some kind of spiritual disciplines in my life? Memorizing scripture, whatever it is. Am I doing that? Right? It's worked. It'll keep working. Am I risking anything? 
Have I risked anything for Jesus? Or am I afraid? I won't share with people. I won't tell the truth because I'm afraid. Or maybe God's called you on the mission field or called you to start a Bible study or called you to do something radical, but you won't do it because of fear of risk. Because of fear. Did you guys see the story today about, or what wasn't today, it was last week, about the guy that got swallowed by the whale. Anybody see that? I read that and the only thing I think was, bro, you should have been in Nineveh, huh? <laughs> like sometimes I think we run from risk and we run right into a storm of problems. I'm telling you the safest place to be is in God's will. There's no safer place to be. That's where you're supposed to be. If God calls me to something, it's not a risk. It's okay, let's go. Let's do this. Are we finishing well? Not just starting well, are we finishing well? One of my life verses is one of the final verses that Paul writes. It's 2 Timothy 4, verse seven. And he says this, I fought the good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Therefore is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. I love that. That's one of my prayers. God, help me to fight the good fight here in Grants Pass. God, help me to be one that finishes what you've called me to do. Help me to keep my faith in you because the reward is out of this world. Are we finishing strong? Are we starting to go by the wayside? These are all New Testament principles. But here's the difference. Did Solomon do what he wisely wrote in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes? No, Solomon was a bad boy, right? He needed a spanking. He was a bad boy. What, what was his failure? It was all up here, but no power to actually do it. So when we stand on this side of the cross and of Jesus and of Calvary, we're very different than Solomon because we have access to something. We have access to a brand new heart. We have access to a brand new spirit. We have access to God actually remaking us and molding us after the image of his son. So when I read stuff in the Old Testament, in Proverbs, in wisdom, this is my response. It's, oh, Jesus, I have that desire. But I know that's not gonna happen by might or by power, but it's gonna happen by your spirit. So Jesus, right now, make this a reality in my life. Shape me and form me. Take the desire in my head and make it a desire in my heart that I live this thing. So we come to the table every Sunday Part of the reason is we need to be reminded of that, that we're not alone. Jesus says, I didn't leave you as an orphan. It's not like, well, good luck with that. You'll never do it. No, the desires, the desires that the Bible intrigues us with, they meet their power, their yes and amen. First Corinthians 1.20, they meet their yes and amen in Christ. So we come to the table and say, make me this now. Make me a generous person. Make me a person that does the bankables. Make me a person that takes risks for your kingdom. Make me a person that finishes strong. We come and we receive that strength and that power. There's even another level to it. Because the Bible actually talks about the laying on of hands. That there's this thing that can happen when the believers pray for the believers. It's written about Timothy where just power gets given to them. It's like just reaffirming, man, I hear what Jesus is putting on your heart and now I am praying that happens in you. You wanna be generous? Okay, let's pray that. You wanna be a risk taker? Okay, let's pray that. You wanna do the bankables? Okay, let's pray that. You wanna finish strong? Okay, let's pray that. 
So not only are we going to take communion today, but after service, there'll be a group of leadership right over here. And it'll be our joy that if God has encouraged you in some way this morning, that now we get to just pray that in. Okay, make that a reality. Make that a, you're not on your own. Because if you are, you'll end up like Solomon. Praise God, we're not. Now we get the strength and power of Jesus and his spirit that guides us and enables us to do what we want to do the most. And so Jesus, this day, we wanna live wise lives. No one in here today wants to be a fool. But we have an enemy who's really good at plucking the seed of scripture and the seed of inspiration that comes from you and devouring it. And so I ask this day, as we eat and as we drink, that the good seed of scripture would go into good soil, would be protected, would be nourished by you, empowered by you. That those who should be prayed for this morning would get prayed for, that that seed produces good fruit, 30, 60, 100 fold, exceedingly abundantly above all that they could ask or think for your kingdom and for your glory. May each one of us, Lord, leave here today better equipped to be salt and light in Grant's Pass. And we ask this through your spirit in your name. Amen.